The talk tonight is called Feeding Our Hearts with Wisdom. I um, travel a lot, and because I live in Honolulu, um, I frequent the airport there quite a bit. Uh, And I've walked by a display of um, shells, beautiful shells, um, for 20 years. I've walked by them kind of in a hurry going, you know, to my gate. You know, there's that usual running through the airport trying to get to the gate on time. And uh, this last time that I went to the airport, I had enough time to take the time to just really look and see these shells. And these aren't you know, your kind of ordinary shells. They were really large shells that had um, been opened up so that you could see the inside of them, you know, like the, a cross-section of them. Can you hear? It's okay. Okay. Um, and most of us know, you know, the look of a spiral inside. But because these shells were so large, it was so clear. Of You could follow the spiral and see that one was spiraling around the same stuff over and over. But each time there was more space and more space and more space and more space. And I think we all know the feeling, especially when we come on a retreat, you know, that didn't I look at this already? You know, or people will come and say, I thought I did that in therapy 15 years ago. Or, you know, I thought I got rid of that pain in my neck. You know, and whatever it is, it's like we feel like we're spiraling around the same issues or the same physical pain. Um, and yet, if we look closely, you know, if we're not caught up in you know, a mind state of hopelessness, we can see that we are learning. And we are, we are getting more space. That's the kind of spiral journey. So the process of meditation is opening to how life is. It's opening to the vast joys and sorrows of life, but also um, developing enough spaciousness, wisdom, um, to bring us to a really deep understanding of how things are balance, peace. This is a poem by William Stafford called A Ritual to Read to Each Other. If you don't know the person I am, and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern that others made may prevail in the world. And following the wrong God home, we may miss our star. For there is many a small betrayal in the mind, a shrug that lets the fragile sequence break, sending with shouts the horrible errors of childhood, storming out to play through the broken dike. And as elephants parade, holding each other's ele- each elephant's tail, and if one wanders, the circus won't find the park, I call it cruel and maybe the root of all cruelty, to know what occurs, but not recognize the fact. And so I appeal to a voice, to something shadowy, 
a remote and important region in all who talk. Though we could fool each other, we should consider, lest the parade of our mutual life get lost in the dark. For it is important that awake people be awake, or a breaking line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes or no, or maybe, should be clear. The darkness around us is deep. There's a lot of um, incredible lines in this poem, but if you get that sense that one moves from a pattern that others made, it's like we're born into so much conditioning, eons of conditioning. And because of that, if we're not awakening, we may miss our star. We may miss, you know, the ability to really search, navigate our way, and find understanding. So what is this darkness around us that's so deep? The Buddha had an incredible map of, of the spiritual journey and of the darkness as well as the light. And he said that this darkness is ignorance. And another way to see that is just this deep confusion of what is suffering, how and why we suffer, and how we liberate ourselves. How does wisdom penetrate the heart? Uh, so suffering... <laughs> in many ways, is not understanding how and why we suffer. So if we're willing to face the range of joy and sorrow in this world, it can be shattering, it can crack us open, and hopefully we'll be motivated to feed our hearts with wisdom and love. So we take birth in this world of duality, you know, and there's so many ways to explain that, even the paradox of fullness, emptiness, female, uh, male, predator, prey, birth and death, war and peace, householder, monk or nun, easy, difficult, joy and sorrow. And this birth that we take, where we um, perceive ourselves as separate, um, the idea in meditation is to investigate how that separation, the perception of separation, happens. And if you look at a human being, we have six sense doors. And in a way, they're like six holes. Uh, The eyes, ears, nose, tongue, skin heart or mind. It's like we have these six sense doors. And one of the aspects of understanding how and why we suffer is to start to understand what's happening at the six sense doors. And one of the reasons why we need the stillness and the concentration is to start to see what Christina was talking about the other moment, uh, to understand Vedana, pleasure, pain, 
you know, what's happening with sight, what's happening with sound, what's happening with each moment of consciousness. Well, technically, with each moment of consciousness, meaning, you know, that when there's a sight, uh, with that moment of sight, and it's simultaneous, it's not the moment after, simultaneously, there's a pleasant or unpleasant or neutral feeling. And this isn't an emotion, it's a mental feeling. That's happening moment after moment, whether it's a a body sensation, some little breeze that passes and there might be a pleasant feeling, the next moment might be an unpleasant knee pain, the next moment might be a pleasant thought, the next moment might be a neutral thought. You know, it's amazing. And when we talk about trying to understand change, you know, it's really this stream of change is happening that most of us aren't even aware of. And because we're not aware of this stream of change that's happening, we're at a loss. This is the darkness. We're just blindly reacting to the pleasure and pain and neutrality and the change of it. So what the Buddha taught us is this stream of change that we do have very little control over. But where we can break the chain of conditioning is how we respond to this change. Do we react or do we respond? And how we define reaction is that if there's an unpleasant feeling with one of the six sense doors, if we're not aware of that, if we're not mindful of that, pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutrality, will react to the pleasant by holding on to the experience, or will react to the unpleasantness with fear by pulling away from the experience or pushing away. And this is, this is the nuts and bolts of how we suffer. And one of the things that's very important to see in this is that these are just temporary moments of identification with experience. And it's really what we call an I or a me or a mind. If we look closely, we'll see that it's just in these moments of not being in touch with the truth of life. We're not in balance. It's like we're not flowing with the stream of change. It's that moment of contraction that we suffer. And it's because we're not even aware of this that we kind of live in what we call a madness. It's like there's a madness in the human world because of it. So when we're not aware of this profundity of change, well, we think of that as a kind of oppression or prison. And when we start becoming aware of this, that's the beginning of freedom. The heart being... Uh, fed by understanding the wisdom. There are many ways that we can face change because ultimately we face our assumptions or opinions or our own righteousness. And it's a kind of arrogance that we think we should be in control of how life should be. We think we should be in control of how all people should be and how we should be. (laughs) You know, so facing change often means that we face (laughs) 
face, we face the grief around that. You know, we, we want to control how relationships will go. You know, we want to control how somebody is born, you know. And the, how much can we really control how somebody dies or how somebody is born or how somebody lives? An aspect to being okay with how life is, which is equanimity, it's like a deep, unconditional acceptance. It's, it's when we really have that sense, it's very sweet, that it's okay. You know, things are as they are. It doesn't mean that we design the universe and that this is how we think it should be. It's just that it's how it is. We accept how it is. And there's a kind of patience in that. And patience isn't a submission or giving up, but it's really understanding how life is and helps us move toward unconditional acceptance. So we can see that reacting to change, manipulating, you know, the avoidance of pain, the holding on to pleasure, you know, we start to see how entangled we feel and what that contraction feels like. And we start to develop a taste for freedom. The Buddha taught that just as the ocean or the sea has the taste of salt, so his teachings about suffering have the taste of liberation. And you can see that in kind of that spiral journey that we do start to develop more and more of a taste for freedom. We start to have glimpses of freedom. And even though we might struggle on the way, it's like those tastes of freedom are like a lighthouse that we orient ourselves with, like a star. Once in a while, the woman who lived across the street from me when I was a child emails me. And often, um, she's not that great with a computer. And most of the times when I get her emails, they're blank. (laughs) And it it often takes me months to get her to get, you know, like I'll write back, it didn't come through, you know, and then it didn't come through. And some, I think her husband finally does it or something, but it's pretty funny. And after several months, she finally got this to me, and she wrote, um, (laughs) Lately I've been in a frenzy, like every day, trying to keep everything from being how it is. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of like it sums up the household life, huh? Lately, I've been in a frenzy, like every day, (laughs) trying to keep everything from being how it is. (laughs) It was worth the wait. (laughs) So when we do have this glimpse of something other than that frenzy, it's that unconditional acceptance. Because when it's conditional, it's the frenzy. 
when it's unconditional, it's not that we're saying it's the universe that we would have preferred <laughs> or that we would have designed. It's really the universe that we were born into and is. So the reaction to change is the suffering, and certainly the identification with a reaction to change is the darkness. There's um, something that we're all pretty familiar if we've sat through many retreats, but it's always fun to be reminded, which is um, the ways in which we judge each other on a retreat, you know, all the different opinions we can have of each other. And I always find it really interesting that especially if we don't look up a lot and we just kind of know each other by our shoes (laughs) or how we walk, you know, and how we shut our door in our dorm, you know, all these things that we might not even see the person, but we have a whole story about them. You know, we know them so well. And, and it's, it's really good to be reminded of, you know, that extreme from the Vipassana romance, or the Vipassana love, and the Vipassana vendetta. You know, there's this range from the neutral to the, you know, real extreme of hatred to the just swooning when the person walks by. You know, it's just incredible. And we don't know them. And I always love it when I only know their shoes. You know, it's like, how can this happen? You know, that you can get that out there. Uh, but this is really important. You know, it's, it's so fundamental. Because we get fooled, you know, over and over again we're getting fooled because we think that something pleasurable is out there or something unpleasant is out there. And this is why the Buddha's teaching around this is so simple and it's so hard to remember because really the pleasant feeling is happening in the mind door, the heart, the mind door. You know, the pleasant feeling isn't out there on the floor. (laughs) It's right here. It's in the perception itself. It's in that moment of consciousness where we see or hear or taste or feel a physical sensation or the thought. So we get all caught up in holding on to something outside of ourselves or pushing away somebody that we really don't like, not realizing that the whole drama is actually happening inside. And we need to be reminded of this over and over and over. It just, um, it's amazing. And I think that there's always that great line, you know, when we're really feeling very righteous about how we don't like somebody, you know, whether it's someone in our family or somebody, you know, in traffic or whatever, whatever it is. And we have to remind ourselves, do I want to be free? Or do I want to be right? You know, do I want to... <laughs> and uh, sometimes it's a really hard decision. <laughs> and uh, having to work with this myself a lot, especially in traffic. Um, <laughs> I mean, m- a lot of you have heard this, but my father was a race car driver. And the way he taught me to drive was to consider everything on the road, or even off the road, as an obstacle, you know. (laughs) And it's really their fault 
that they're in the way, you know, and the red lights, stoplights, you know, cars, pedestrians. Um, <laughs> and it's a very hard conditioning to break, you know. In fact, <laughs> my father taught me not to stop at stop signs. <laughs> really, I mean, he, he taught me that you only make it look like you stop. <laughs> because it's always that sense you're in a hurry. I mean, you know, he was really in a hurry. Uh, <laughs> and my first day out on the road, I got a ticket for going through a stop sign. <laughs> and I was amazed, you know, I just, you know, I just said to the police officer, I said, you know, what's the problem? You know, and he said, you went through the stop sign. And I said, I know. <laughs> And I said, I just, I just made it look like I said. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's been, also, it's been a slowing down process ever since, you know. We all do this, you know. And I think that the reason I'm giving this talk tonight is really around understanding that whenever you notice that you're suffering, you know, this isn't every moment, but certainly whenever you notice your suffering, to ask yourself, what are you missing? You know, what's the hidden uh, thing that's happening? And if, if you just look at all, it's usually that you're pushing away something unpleasant. It might have been something that happened in the past or it's happening in the present. Or you're holding on to something pleasant. You know, this is my love of the Buddha's teaching, that, that it can be that simple, and it's hard for us to remember. And when we hear this teaching, what tends to happen is that then we, you know, we're such perfectionists, and, you know, we're such, you know, in some ways we have very pure hearts and very pure motivation, and we want to act like we don't have any aversion or attachment, you know, or that it's going to be over very soon, you know. <laughs> you know, we want to you know, get this done and over with. Uh, so we miss the little detail of, of equanimity, of acceptance, of allowing the reaction, of being able to be mindful of the reaction. So much of our effort and practice is learning how to notice the wanting mind, to notice the fearful mind, to notice the not wanting, and to experience it. So, of course, I mean, I much rather prefer to be right than to feel anger. It's much more pleasant, you know, it's like avoiding the vulnerability of letting myself feel the pain of the anger. And it's the same with wanting something. Of course, it's great to be in a fantasy of being loved and held and saving the world. You know, we can get into these great fantasies. But when we look, it's avoiding wanting. So the degree to which you can allow yourself to suffer in this way is the ending of suffering. You know, this is what the Buddha called (laughs) the suffering that ends suffering. And what I feel so impressed by in, you know, being here this week is that so many of you are really, you know, have gotten this and are working so well with this, or if you're new, you're starting to get it. And it's so inspiring to work with you, to be here with you, because this is really what it's all about. 
the nuts and bolts of understanding suffering, but also the nuts and bolts of understanding freedom. So when we're spiraling along on the journey, sometimes we discover vulnerable, hidden, painful parts of ourselves, which are all aspects of aversion and attachment. But we don't know how to experience them, and we disconnect, mainly because we don't have that skill. Uh, So hopefully as we spiral around and we hit something like feeling unlovable, you know, that we start to get enough strength to, to, to taste it a bit and know how to have the skill to experience it, or hopelessness, anger, you know, all those difficult aspects of life. One of my um, Achilles in my life is, is just being able to feel fear, mindfully. Uh, and I know in my recent years that when fear comes up and I'm just able to say very simply, oh, first it's, oh, I'm afraid. You know, and it, it's been such a great experience to go from a place in my life for so many years where if it was fear, it was like such resistance and it would build and build to a kind of terror and such a fear of the fear to shift where, oh, you know, oh, I'm afraid. And sometimes it can shift to, oh, it's just fear. It's not my fear. It's just fear. Mindfulness can have four aspects, which um, I mention a lot over the years, but I think it's helpful just to remember that it includes recognition, recognizing what's happening, accepting what's happening, being interested in what's happening and not taking it personally, not identifying with what's happening. Uh, And you know the place where you might be caught in a thought pattern for a really long time. Sometimes in my early years of practice, I would have this fantasy about being rejected, and it was really painful. You know, (laughs) I would come out of it and I'd think, it's not even a pleasant fantasy. (laughs) You know, I mean, it was just so painful to get caught in this. And it took a long time for me to understand that that whole fantasy was really fear of rejection. But this was something that cycles through my life. You know, it still cycles through my life. It's, it's a karmic knot. But in my early years of practice, I wouldn't understand that the fantasy was really just avoiding the experience. And in that time, I needed it. I couldn't, I couldn't face it all at once. And over time, I started just realizing when I could recognize, oh, this is the fear of rejection take. It was huge just to be able to name it. And then I learned to move away from it because I didn't have enough strength to really experience it fully. So one of the aspects of this um, talk that I really think is what I want to emphasize is learning how to work with difficulty A lot of it is learning how to move away from pain, whether it's physical, emotional, or mental, as well as move into it. So if we're always thinking we have to dive in and go into the core of physical pain, emotional pain, and mental pain, it's not um, skillful. If you have mind, you know, recognition, acceptance, interest, non-identification, or some aspects of that, at least recognition, 
oh, anger. You see the difference between being able to go, oh, anger, and then maybe like, go, oh, oh, no, not anger, I can't handle this. Well, if it's, oh, no, anger, I can't handle this, maybe it's a sign that we need to go to something neutral, like a breath for a few seconds, and then kind of see, oh, do I have any space to see if I can open to this? And the idea with an emotion is that one sees if we can, one can find any way to ground the attention with physical sensations the body, notice any physical sensations. Sometimes it might just be a mental state and not have anything physical. But certainly if you have any experience that you have difficulty with, again, a physical pain, emotional pain, or mental pain, it requires really sensing. If you have a lot of energy and some mindfulness, that's the time to be heroic. You know, that's the time when we encourage you. See what it's like to go to the core of the physical pain. See what it's like to really... That's why they're difficult. The nature is that we don't have a lot of skill. And learning to go to something neutral is why we teach having an anchor that's neutral. So the, the, the neutrality of an anchor... And sometimes when something's difficult, we need several, is meant to rest the attention and strengthen us. The rest strengthens us to go into what's difficult again. So we're very conditioned to think that that's a cop-out, yeah? That we're failing somehow. Um, And we forget that that's a very skillful way to work with difficulty. What isn't so difficult, skillful, but that's, it's part of the learning, is getting caught in fantasy or thoughts about the experience. You know, it's when we, we get writer and writer and writer with anger. You know, we know how that is. We blame, blame, blame. And we, you know, we convince ourselves that we're right. But has that really helped us learn to work with the anger? This took me so long to really understand, you know, and I learned a lot of it through difficult physical sensations. And one way to describe this is on on a more subtle level, when we're interested in pain or difficulty, if the motivation is pure, then there's no aversion or attachment happening. And there's no manipulator or controller present. There isn't a separate self saying, I'm going to go into this pain and I'm going to work it out or get rid of it. And you can see when we're motivated by that with an emotion or with physical pain, we're just going to be reinforcing aversion or attachment. Uh, And again, this took me a long time to understand, so I'm not saying that we always remember it. But if the, if the interest isn't pure, then we're just manipulating. And it's much better, it's much more skillful to move away from it to something more skillful and neutral. You build up the rest, and at some point you go back to it. Or, you know, <laughs> it, it's not like you necessarily go back to it. It's like it'll come up again <laughs> at some point. And physical, chronic physical pain, you don't have to worry about it appearing again, right? (laughs) 
And often with anything, you know, I call them the karmic knots, whether they're physical or emotional, um, we have this attitude of, oh, this is still happening. And one time, there was a um, friend of mine that I sat with a lot in my early years of practice, and I came out from a retreat really vulnerable and kind of just kind of feeling like I had just made some headway with some difficult patterns. And I explained some of that to her. And she said something that was so hard. She said, are you still working with that? You know, and just this <laughs> arrogant, you know, <laughs> tone. You know, and I, I just wanted to kill her, you know. It's just so painful. Uh, and we can have that attitude about ourselves and others, you know, when we have that sense that, you know, what's wrong with us that we're still working with it? Well, it's a karmic, it's, it's a lesson we're here this lifetime to work with. Some of us have physical things, you know, I was born with heavy allergies, you know, and the doctors said in the early years, you're going to outgrow them, <laughs> you know. That was kind of a bad joke. I mean, it's not what happened. Um, And when you have it at birth, it's not like I developed this thing at seven years old. It's just something karmically I live with. So hopefully we start to get a sense of how to work skillfully with difficulty. And I think a lot of it has to do with really understanding when our motivation is pure and the interest is there in a way that we're really going into the physical pain with a sense of exploring, that it's really okay, that that tight, burning, (laughs) throbbing experience is okay, and we don't have to get rid of it. We show up for it because we're trying to learn how to experience it, to not get rid of it. Or if it's attachment, we're experiencing it because we want to learn how to experience it. That's pure. And then we're not afraid of it anymore. Freedom, <laughs> freedom isn't dependent on something disappearing forever. <coughs> freedom is that sense that when something comes up, like hopelessness, We go, oh, I know how to work with that. That's okay. And if we go, oh, no, then we say, oh, I need to move away from this to something more skillful so that I can rest the mind and and heart so that at some point again I can learn to work with this. It's that simple. Sometimes this kind of interest is called joyful interest. And it's joyful because we overcome pleasure and pain. We're interested in both. (coughs) I had uh, uh, several experiences this past year that I wanted to share with you around this um, in different ways. There's a young adult that I've known over the years that um, Uh, went to sit in Asia quite young uh, and for a while 
uh, and he came back to my home in Honolulu this spring, this past spring, when it, you know, there, it was a hard year for me, a lot of difficult things. And he came back really, <laughs> um, a lot of difficulty had opened and he hadn't learned to work with it yet. That's kind of an understatement. In <laughs> fact, he came back thinking that he was responsible for um, the conflict in the Mideast. He, and I'm, you know, it was serious. He was just, he was feeling responsible for um, a lot of the pain in the world. There was, you know, he's such a perfectionist, and he had so much self-judgment. And I think he was expecting to come back from Asia, the Buddha. You know, and it, that's a lot of weight, yeah? <laughs> that's pretty hard to pull off. Um, so... I decided to try to help him a bit by bringing him to the movies, and you know, I was trying to talk with him, and after a couple of days, and he was so in such a heavy space, and I finally got to this place where I thought, maybe he can handle this. Um, and there's a, a line from Wavy Gravy about humor that's pretty good. So I was sitting with him, and I said, you know, I want to say something to you, but you know, just try to open to it. And I said, you know, if you lose your sense of humor, it's not funny anymore. <laughs> you know, and I thought, you know, that look at, you know, he, I knew he was really wanting to strangle me, but it was like he opened to it and it popped it. You know, it was just finally some light came in. You know, it's just, ah. Oh you know, lighten up. You know, I mean, sometimes we really need to lighten up. Uh, and when we totally lose our se sense of humor, especially for a month or two, you know, you, <laughs> you know something isn't going the right direction. <laughs> He's bouncing back, by the way. <laughs> And then um, this fall, my nephew uh, got married. And when I was young, my sister got pregnant when she was 15. And it was kind of a, um, what would you call, extremely dysfunctional family. And I started <coughs> raising her children when I was 11. Um, so I was very close to these children. And at a certain point, I realized, you know, when the youngest, which is the one who got married, I was about eight, I realized I really needed to um, find my own life. Um, so I hadn't seen the, these three children for quite a while. You know, I've seen them a little bit, but uh, he got married and I went. And it was such a wonderful time. You know, it's like they, they just have given back to me so much gratitude. You know, they're unusual children in that way with just um, really realize what I did. And it was such a pure, it was, there was not even the slightest impurity in how I felt about them, so it wasn't like it was hard to do uh, by any means. Uh, but I hadn't realized how much I missed them. So I was driving away from this wedding, and I was feeling this incredible fullness and, it, and I started identifying with it. You know, it's like, this was great, you know, it was wonderful. And the weather sort of uh, reflected it. There was this beautiful sunset, and the whole sky was orange. And I'm getting more and more 
gee, that was great, and that was wonderful. <laughs> and, you know, it was a long drive, <laughs> two hours passed, and I started feeling kind of like, uh, you know, starting to feel more empty and depressed. <laughs> and then I just realized, wow, I really miss them. You know, that was just allowing myself to miss them, and it was okay. And so I think that sometimes we don't let ourselves do that. You know, just, it's not like we're attached to the past as much we're really not allowing ourselves to miss in the present. And, and that's a real important aspect of grief um, that's, that makes it um, possible to shift to a, a pure kind of love again. Hmm. And then there was something difficult that happened to me this fall for myself, which was September 11th happened. And my best friend from childhood was on the first flight that went into the World Trade Center. Um, And it was some, I think all of us were so deeply affected by that day. Uh, But sometimes when it's someone you really know well, uh, it was just like the impact of it was so intense. And right after that, you know, right after that, my nephew got married. And so there was this um, incredible sadness and incredible joy at the same time. And someone sent me this little um, story that was very helpful for me. A Native American grandfather was talking to his grandson about how he felt about the tragedy of September 11th. And he said, I feel as if I have two wolves fighting in my heart. One wolf is the vengeful, angry, violent one. The other is the loving, compassionate one. And the grandson asked his grandfather, which wolf will win the fight in your heart? And the grandfather answered, the one I feed. And so this darkness that is inside and outside of us is really when we're feeding our hearts with anger and violence, um, despair, hopelessness, when we're not working towards waking up, uh, we're moving toward ignorance. And when we choose to feed the heart with wisdom, love, understanding, all of that, you know, we're allowing the world to become a lighter place, a brighter place. So we really have to face, you know, this stream of change in life. It is so profound. There are seasons in our life, seasons of joy, seasons of change, seasons of loss. Um, And each of us can find the freedom to be at ease with this change. You know, and this is, it's so important for us to know that we can do it. Uh, When we have the sense that we are reacting and when we're lost, if we're able to say, it's just lost, and when we're able to be here fully, you know, when we feel at home, it's just being at home. 
And there's no need to identify with each. It's like if we can just have that sense, oh, it's just loss. I call that having equanimity with having no equanimity. It's like even if, 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 even if you feel like you're really chugging along just the next hour or tomorrow and you sense that, whoa, it's really fogged in <laughs> and I really feel identified with something, you can still step back and just say, oh, lost. And you don't have to be identified with it. And if you, if you rest the mind like we've been teaching with an anchor, if you keep trying to poke holes in it, even if you're lost in a fantasy. The first way I started to learn with working with fantasy is every time I noticed I was in it, even if I chose to go back in it, I would send myself some metta. Because in some ways the avoidance of the experience by the fantasy, I needed to have metta. And after a while, by poking holes in it and by accepting it, I started to have the strength to experience what was underneath it. So this process takes great patience, but I think you see over time that you start spiraling spiraling around and getting more space and more space and freedom with each experience. And you start to feel freer. So I'd like to end with a poem by Robert Frost, uh, because I started with a poem about a star, and I wanted to end with one. And it's, um, it's a little unsimple, but it's quite beautiful if you hear certain lines that you might uh, connect with. It's called Choosing Something Like a Star. Choose Something Like a Star. O oh star, the fairest one in sight, We grant your loftiness the right to some obscurity of cloud. It will not do to say of night, some dark is what brings out your light. Some mystery becomes the proud. But to be wholly taciturn in your reserve is not allowed. Say something to us we can learn. By heart, when alone, repeat, say something, and it says, I burn. But say with what degree of heat. Talk Fahrenheit, talk centigrade, use language we can comprehend. Tell us what elements you blend. It gives us strangely little aid, but does tell something in the end. And steadfast as Keats Aramite, not even stooping from its sphere. It asks a little of us here. It asks of us a certain height. So when at times the mob is swayed to carry praise or blame too far, we may choose something like a star to stay our minds on and be stayed. Let's sit for a minute.
may we be free from suffering.